Well, uh, if you have been around First Christian over the past few weeks, you know that we are right in the middle of a sermon series called Reset, The Power of Rest. So far, we've talked about remembering the Sabbath. We've talked about refocusing. And this morning, our third R word uh, for restore now, a few weeks ago, Andrew reached out to me and was like, you know, Lisa, could you, could you fill in for me? I'm going to be traveling. I'm like, absolutely. A couple weeks go by, and he's like, so we're doing this series on Sabbath. Does that sound okay to you? Yeah, that sounds great. I can do that. What about it starting with an R word? <laughs> I'm like, sure. I had about 10 ideas for him. That was a little overwhelming, but restore is where... The Spirit led me. So as we think about that word this morning, I'm wondering what comes to mind for you. As I, I sat with it, I'm like, ooh, this could go a couple of different ways, right? I think about the restoration work uh, that is done to restore something back to its former beauty, like a vintage car or a boat, or a house, or jewelry, or even furniture. And when we think about that kind of restoring, bringing back an object to life is what we say when we're talking about that kind of work. It doesn't take too long to realize that, man, that, that's a lot of work. Anybody else watch This Old House? I watched that as a kid growing up, and we still love to watch it you know, cozy under our blankets, reclining against the cozy pillows and watching the people work really hard to remove layer after layer after layer of paint to get down to that original wood that's underneath that original to the house mantle, ripping up the ugly carpet and then some very misguided linoleum choices to find beautiful hardwood floors that of course need to be what? Restored. They strip away all the outdated HVAC systems, the wiring, to start all over again, right? So you might be wondering, with good reason, well, you know, this doesn't sound an awful lot like resting, really, right? How is that Sabbath keeping? And I confess, obviously, that is filled with work. And it does feel very opposite of what we've been talking about in terms of Sabbath. But thankfully, that is not the only way to consider the word restore or restoration. It also has roots in this idea of something going back to its origins. But it's almost like relationship-based, right? Fixing something that's broken, broken, restoring relationship. And I'm wondering if you have ever considered that res restoration in that vein is essentially a part of rest, a part of Sabbath that may be embedded in that command to remember the Sabbath is a reminder for us to not only be rested, but for us to be restored in our relationship with God. 
as it turns out, I had a difficult time narrowing down the passage of scripture that I wanted us to consider together this morning because I kept thinking of example after example after example. Think about the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, for example. The son is welcomed back with eager and open arms from his dad. And what happened? His place in the family was restored. What was broken relationship became mended. What had become dark and sad and pain-filled became light and life. If we think about the stories of Jesus and his work on this earth, it turns out that Jesus thought that restoring people into a good relationship with God was so important, not only with God, but also with one another, by the way, The majority of what we see Jesus do on this earth in the Gospels, I think we could categorize it in this way as acts of restoration. Because I believe that all those mentions of repenting are really an invitation to be restored. I even found myself over the past few weeks, uh, there was a, a glimmer of a song in my mind. I kept thinking it, and I just couldn't quite nail it down. It was elusive. I'm like, there's a song that we sing at church all the time. What is it? What is it? What is it? And it finally clicked. It's, in fact, from a very old song, and I bet it's one that you know by heart as well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. You leadeth me beside the still waters. You restoreth my soul. Psalm 23, the first three verses. So what if restoring our souls is the whole point of Sabbath keeping in the first place? Unfortunately, I believe for many of us, we may not have a great memory of what Sabbath keeping means. Because when we were growing up, our parents, our grandparents, our community forced us to do things on Sabbath day that we just really didn't want to do. We had to sit down. We had to be quiet. We couldn't play our games. We couldn't run around. We couldn't laugh or play or do things that brought us joy. And maybe if that wasn't our particular experience, we have heard those stories from those who've come before us. And if that's not our memory, then instead we have this other idea that we can't possibly afford to take a day off. We have too many things to do, too many obligations. We can't can't afford that, whether that's literally financially or just because we have so much that we feel that we need to attend to do. We can't waste a day on doing nothing we think. I still think that neither of those pictures are really the intention behind keeping Sabbath. There's a book that I've had for some time now called Wayne, it's by an author named Wayne Mueller, and it's called Sabbath, Finding Rest, Renewal, and Delight in Our Busy Lives. And his whole book is trying to help us 
let go of our preconceptions about what Sabbath keeping is and to restore our understanding of what it really means to keep Sabbath. And this is what he says. The practice of Sabbath is designed specifically to restore us a gift, a gift of time in which we allow the cares and concerns of the marketplace to fade away. We set aside time to delight in being alive, to savor the gifts of creation, and to give thanks for the blessings that we may have missed in our necessary occupation with our work. Ancient texts suggest we do things like light candles or sing songs, pray, we tell stories, we worship, we eat, we nap, we make love. It's a day of delight, he writes, a sanctuary in time. And within that sanctuary, we make ourselves available to the insights and the blessings that arise only in stillness and time. Now, just in case you're still not convinced that God is really okay with us, in fact, resting, we do find yet another place in Scripture that provides refreshing evidence, and it's the story of the prophet Elijah found in 1 Kings 19. And before we read our text, I want to give you just a little intro so you know what's happening when we arrive at our point in the story. So in this season of the life of God's people, the ancient Israelites, the people of God have been under the rule of kings. Great kings that we remember, like King David and King Solomon, and also some not-so-great kings, like King Ahab, who, in fact, is a contemporary of Elijah's and a major player in his ministry as a prophet. And as the kings ruled the nation of God's people, God raised up prophets whose task it was to be the mouthpiece of God to God's people and even to the king, often calling them back to the basics of their covenant relationship with God. And if taken as a whole, there's some uh, common themes that kind of come up again and again over their history, advocating for the people of God to put down their false gods, you know, literally stopping the worship of the gods of the locals, and advocating for Israel to act in the ways that God had laid out for them in the Ten Commandments, including remembering the Sabbath, right? There was also a continuous and pervasive call for justice, for those who were powerful and mighty to be ever mindful that the ones that they may have been exploiting were also God's children. As Micah 6, 8 puts it, the prophets continue to make this call to love mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly with God. So Elijah is one of God's prophets, and there are some pretty incredible moments under his belt already when we meet him in 1 Kings 19. Back in chapter 17, uh, God tells Elijah that he's going to keep it from raining for three years so that he could show King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, how unhappy he was with their actions. And God also has a plan for how Elijah will actually live through those three years of drought, right? No rain, no little water, little food. The ravens fed him at first, scripture tells us, 
And then he sent to the home of a widow and her son, where the oil and the flour are miraculously refilled day after day. In chapter 18, Elijah returns to King Ahab with a final word from the Lord and demands that all of Israel be gathered together on Mount Carmel, along with all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, numbering 450 and 400 respectively. Elijah comes prepared for a final showdown for all of Israel to decide once and for all to see which God was truly the most high God. This is probably a story that you've heard before. They decide they would each prepare a sacrifice of oxen to their respective gods. They would each have a turn to call to their God, asking to send down fire from heaven to consume it. Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. They, allowed, they were allowed to pick their preferred oxen for sacrifice, gave them first dibs on time to communicate to their God to rain down fire from heaven to consume the offering. After hours and hours of them doing this, there's no answer. As it says in verse 29 of chapter 18, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then it was Elijah's turn. But he, went, he was a little extra. Not only did he prepare the oxen, as the others did, he also doused it with water for three times before he prayed to the Most High God. And when he did, he said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell, consumed everything, the sacrifice, the wood, and the water. And just as Elijah had prayed, when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord is God. Then a really uncomfortable thing hap happens, and Elijah eliminates the prophets of Baal, literally all of them. And then Elijah tells King Ahab, We better get going because it's fixing to rain again after three years of drought. And so Elijah runs away. That's where we enter the story in chapter 19, verse 1. Lots of moving parts. Ahab went home, King Ahab that is, told Queen Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he'd killed all of Baal's prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message, May the gods do whatever they want to me by this time tomorrow if I have not made your life like the life of one of them. And Elijah was terrified. He got up and he ran for his life. He arrived at Beersheba in Judah and left his assistant there. He himself went farther on into the desert a whole day's journey. He finally sat down under a solitary broom bush. Bush, excuse me. He longed for death. It's more than enough, Lord. Take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. He lay down and slept under that solitary broom bush. Then suddenly a messenger tapped him and said to him, Get up! Eat something! Elijah opened his eyes and saw flatbread breaking on glowing coals and a jar of water right by his head. He ate and he drank and then he went back to sleep. The Lord messenger's re messenger returned a second time and tapped him. 
get up, the messenger said. Eat something, because you have a difficult road ahead of you. Elijah got up, ate and drank, and went refreshed by that food for 40 days and nights until he arrived at Mount Horeb, God's mountain. Same as Mount Sinai, by the way. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. The Lord's word came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They have murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. A strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. After the fire, there was a sound. Thin. Quiet. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat. He went out and stood at the cave's entrance. A voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? He said, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. And the Lord said to him, Go back through the desert to Damascus. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So to recap briefly, after Elijah receives a death threat from Queen Jezebel, Elijah runs for his life. He flees. He runs away from what is difficult, from what is hard. And we're told in verse 4 that he is so tired and so over being this prophet thing that he just wants God to go ahead and put him out of his misery. And after he gets all of that out of his system, he lays down under a tree and he takes a nap. Now, we don't really know what kind of nap this was. Was it a 20-minute nap? Power nap? Was it a three-hour nap? We're not really told the details. But what we do know is that God did not abandon Elijah in his time of very human need of exhaustion, his need for rest. Instead, what God does is sends an angel, a messenger of the Lord, with fresh bread and cold water, tapping him on the shoulder, reminding him to eat. When he sits up and eats the bread and drinks the water, he naps again. A nap, a snack, another nap. Sounds pretty good. And before he knows it, the angel is there again, shaking him awake, telling him to sit up and eat again because you have a difficult journey ahead of you. Only after he naps and snacks and naps and snacks again, can Elijah undertake the 40-day journey to Mount Horeb, where he's determined to go into the very presence of God, out on that very same mountain that Moses communed with God first so long ago when they had just come out of Egypt 
So what if being restored, if resting, if taking Sabbath, if taking a nap isn't really as bad as we say it is? What if the guilt that we have when we take care of our body and our soul is simply a misguided mashup of what we have inherited, the Protestant work ethic and capitalism? What if scripture does not teach us those things? What if we too are invited to a party where we nap and we snack and then nap again? What if being restored is precisely what God had in mind when we were commanded to remember the Sabbath day? We never hear God rebuke Elijah for needing to rest, do we? God was interested to know why Elijah was there, but there's no words of rebuke from God. There's no finger-wagging or head-shaking, no chastising him for being worn out, bent out of shape, for needing some alone time, for needing to say out loud the anger and the hurt and the resentment that he felt in the midst of doing this work for God. There's no voice telling him, well, you should have just kept going anyway. Instead, we see a God who cares deeply for Elijah, who cares that Elijah is tired and afraid and hurting and resentful and cares so much, in fact, that a messenger, an angel, is sent to take care of his physical needs so that he would not perish in his journey to the very presence of God. God wanted Elijah to be restored in his physical body as well as in his spirit. And that same God cared so much that he, God appeared before Elijah, not in that strong wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in the sound of fine silence that followed. A God that showed up in the most unexpected way, which I can't help but imagine provided Elijah with a little solace and a little strength and some reassurance that he had not been forgotten or abandoned at all. So friends, if you today find yourself in that kind of place where you're tired and you're worn out, you're disgruntled, if you're afraid and hurting, frustrated and resentful, hear the good news that God who loves you offers you the same restoration that was offered to Elijah. A nap, a snack, and a reminder that you are deeply loved because of who you are, not because of what you do. The God who loves you invites you to be restored. No paint scraping or carpet pulling up required. We're reminded too that Jesus teaches us this same message when he says in Matthew 11, Come to me all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
This is the gift of rest, the gift of Sabbath, and it is up to us to insist on this wisdom in the midst of a culture that pushes us too hard and too far in the other direction. With God's help, maybe we be restored in both body and soul. May it be so. Amen.